I, I can tell this isn't church because there are people sitting in the front row, so it's, it's really nice. Appreciate you six. Good job. Uh, a few questions on how to find me and where this content is going. So uh, my email, if you want to send me or shoot me a question, um, I'm Instagram, Facebook. A lot of the content for here is distilled from the theology of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I turned into my editor. I don't know how much I'm going to change it, how much they're going to tell me to change it, but that should come out sometime next year. And as I mentioned, I'm working on a commentary with the Old Testament Library. It's due in 2023. There hasn't been a critical commentary in Ezra and Nehemiah since 1988. And so I'm not, there's one on Ezra published by Sheffield by Liz Freed. She's an outstanding scholar. It's a really good commentary. This one is uh, updating. There was one in 1988 written by Joseph Blenkinsop. He's a, a Catholic scholar. I'm not replacing it, but I'm writing a new updated version of that. And so uh, it's due in 2023, maybe 2024, something like that. A while, a while for that. I have one article that is open access. And so if you just Google landscapes of Korean and Korean American biblical interpretation, uh, an article on code switching, they actually have, in Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, there's uh, portions of Aramaic. And what you probably don't know, the Aramaic comes in three different versions. They have a imperial Aramaic, which, which is official, a written Aramaic in the western part where Judah was, and a colloquial Aramaic. That's all there, and I think that combines to kind of talk about power and identity in little ways. And so this volume is the first volume of Korean biblical interpretation. It was just released this year, and the editor decided to make it open access. So if you go on the Society of Biblical Literature site or just Google that, you should be able to find that. Uh, Working Preacher, I've been writing for them for about 10 years. I have something like 40 entries. It's really one of my favorite sites. I use this when I preach. Uh, so I'll tell you my instruction when I write for Working Preacher. They tell me for some reason preachers are really busy, they're stressed out, they're doing a lot of things, and they do not have 16 hours to prepare for a sermon typically, and so they want to give you an entryway with good biblical scholarship. They limit me to a thousand words, and they say, uh, what do you think is important in the text that you want to start if you're to train pastors on how to read and preach from this text. And so I really enjoy writing for the site because there's a big readership, but also, as you know, there's a lot of uh, questionable biblical interpretation in the web. And so this is trying to combat that a little bit there. And so I use this frequently when I preach. This has been a really great experience for me. Yesterday, I got an invite uh, to speak to 300 Korean American high school youths in a in Christmas, and I thought, that's, that's going to be different from this. It's going to be a little bit different. And so it's uh, great in different ways, but just different. Shorter, we'll say, shorter. Yesterday, I asked you to think about repatriation. And I argued, I argued in my book that this is a totalizing effect on the reading of Ezra Nehemiah. Not, not the central theme, it's kind of different, but a totalizing effect and that every aspect of the text is informed by repatriation. And I enjoyed conversations with you and that a lot of you during the meals and break time share with me stories of your own kind of liminal journey, especially geographic, and realizing that repatriation uh, is not necessarily border crossing. Borders are artificial in many ways. Uh, repatriation can be any entrance into any liminal space. And I enjoyed this because what you were doing was you were exegeting yourself and how you read this text. You're being very explicit about some of your journeys, and it could be in very different ways, even coming back to a church where you grew up in, after studying at seminary, after being a pastor somewhere else. Uh, it could be returning to a hometown. It could be all sorts of things, different relationships that you have, because you change and the place changes. And so as you think about repatriation, one aspect that's really important is I try to argue for trauma and crisis. Especially you have unmet expectations when you return to a place. Everything is different and often disappointing. And that a theology of Ezra DMI will emphasize that God walks alongside us in trauma and crisis. God is there during these times. And for today, for today I want to talk about another aspect of repatriation, that of power. And in all social displacements, 
there is a renegotiation of power. It's coercive, it's forced upon, and sometimes it's ideological. So how do you think about power? And again, I'm gonna ask you to kind of self-exegete for a second. Uh, consider the complex palette of power within your, your own institution, whether a place of learning, or your congregation, or denomination. What is the palette of power? Who holds power? Who are the ones that hold power in this institution? And how was this power acquired? And of course, this is a very complex question because power is accumulated in different ways, in tradition, uh, embodiment, um, speech, lineage in many times. And how is power distinct from authority? And to clarify, you can have someone that has been given some sanctioned power, and I would call that authoritative. But we all know of certain lay people or uh, that are just have more influence than others. I come from a Quaker heritage institution. Uh, Quakers uh, try to explicitly talk about egalitarianism and leadership but there is something called a weighty Quaker. And if you know, I think this goes from the Hebrew word for glorious or weighty or honored. Uh, so someone who is usually a little bit older and has an honored place. And that's kind of a paradox, right? Within this flat political structure, you have something called a weighty Quaker. And it's done with good intention, someone to recognize authority and wisdom, but also it goes against this idea of a flat political distribution. The pile of power also happens within households, um, of course, you know, who holds power? Uh, children, you know, among you and your partner, if you have a partner, among parents as well. Sometimes that pile of power extends to those that are deceased, right? They still control. So consider the pile of power as we enter the space of thinking about repatriation and power. Something to notice is this is the Persian Empire at its peak. And so the Persian Empire lasted for two centuries. So this is really at its extension, and it is vast. And you see those in the first two rows at least can see Jerusalem is a tiny little space. So Judah is small within that huge geographic space. And what happened in about 400 BC is uh, the Persians lost control of Egypt. At that point, Judah became an, an important buffer land to prevent encroachment politically from Egypt. And so there was more interest of domination in Judah. But overall, think about this. Um, in Jerusalem, it doesn't even lie on a major trade route, uh, kind of a minor one, but not on a major one. It's really isolated. It doesn't have the same climate as, say, Samaria. Farming is a lot more difficult. And so what did Persia care about Judah and what was Judah's power within that huge, vast empire? And you can guess it wasn't very much. So this is a theological problem presented on Ezra and Nehemiah. How do we talk about power, specifically the power of God, when we are nothing in the scope of this vast Persian empire? We have no political power, we have no military power, and we have to give all our goods to the Persian government. As you think about power, and you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, where is David? Go ahead and go lock into your memories of Ezra and Nehemiah. Where do you read about David? Two pretty obscure places. So uh, Jeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. That is a mention of someone of Davidic descent, but they don't specify that. And this person is kind of put in the backdrop, just kind of randomly there. And again, the end, Nehemiah 13, did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? And so the reason they displaced the Davidic empire in Ezra and Nehemiah is because you remember Cyrus is king. Cyrus is recognized. And how do you think the Persians would feel about a document of Ezra and Nehemiah being circulated that lauds this great Davidic empire? They would be very upset. And so you need to negotiate power with King Cyrus. And how do they do that? They do that from the very beginning that says Cyrus is in charge, but the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus. And you have here a tremendously shocking theological innovation that it is the Lord 
that is stirring up the spirit. King Cyrus is in power, but because of God. So who is God and where is God in Ezra and Nehemiah? So go back to your Old Testament history. Um, think about what God, God is very active in a lot of Old Testament. In the, the middle of the 20th century, uh, a big famous book by Professor Wright was written called The God Who Acts. And this had a huge influence in biblical theology because we began to gravitate towards God and God's mighty actions. And so you think about the God of the Exodus and the plagues. You think about God also walking with the patriarchs, except for Joseph. You'll remember, God doesn't really do much with Joseph, but a lot with Abraham and, and Jacob. You'll think about the God that is behind David, that fights, the God of the conquest and the settlement. God is very active in these narrative texts. But where is God in Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, God isn't actually there that much. And so a guy did a study on literally verbs associated with God as deity in Ezra and Nehemiah compared to other biblical narrative. And what did he find? Like he, he literally counted verbs, active verbs compared to, well, he probably had his TA do it, let's be honest. He didn't actually, <laughs> you, know, you don't do that stuff. Uh, and so he counted these verbs. And what did he find out? He found out that uh, God doesn't do much in Ezra and Nehemiah, and what God does is relegated to past actions and not present actions. And so they talk about a God, but a God of the history that did all these great things, but wasn't fully present now. And does that have some sort of identification with your congregation, people in your communities, that God did some amazing things, but I don't see this right now? And there's tremendous recognition in Ezra and Nehemiah that God is still there advocating, but kind of silently, in not the same way as the Exodus or the conquest. I want to talk about power, but form it in a very specific definition. So Hannah Arendt is a well-known philosopher, German philosopher. Uh, she was a German-born Jew. She was arrested, and she escaped Europe before the Holocaust. You can think about how her self-exegesis can inform her notions of power. And a lot of her ideas of power were very contrarian. Like she rejected the idea of power as domination. She rejected the idea of power as violence and saw power in community. That power can be subversive even by those who do not carry authority. So authority and power were very distinct for rent. And so and she was a really well-known, hung around with these really famous thinkers of, of intellectual history. And this is a great notion of power because in Ezra and Nehemiah, Judah does not have any sort of sanctioned power, uh, sanctioned authority. But somehow, they're able to return. Somehow, they're able to build a temple. Somehow, they're able to build walls and worship as a community, despite having little power. And so, the Lord stirs up the spirit of King Cyrus, and right from the very beginning, you have a surprising statement of God's sovereign power within Ezra and Nehemiah, and this kind of flows, undergirds the rest of the text. And so uh, throughout the book, it says, I feel when Ezra and Nehemiah was written and textualized that you have a Persian official behind the back of the Judean scribe to make sure everything's okay. In fact, this is so... Um, recognized in biblical studies in the 1980s, a German uh, biblical scholar, um, he had this thesis that the Persians actually not only, um, they not only sponsored Ezra and Nehemiah, but they sponsored the Torah as well to bring some loyalty to the Persian Empire. So what do the Persians do? We know this from Egypt. When they sent people back to lands, they had them codify their laws and bring tribute back. And so they're using religion as an ideological power to bring tribute back to the Persian Empire. And you think about kind of the stuff in Ezra and Nehemiah, how is power handled? How is power manifested in the midst of the empire? And I'm going to put together two ideas that I have for displays of power. One of them is taxation, and one of them is textuality. And so I'm going to flash up a sign, a picture. I want you to recognize the feelings you get from seeing this picture. So this is a 1040, a bit of a social security card and glasses, and a 20. Uh, what kind of feelings and emotions do you get when you see this picture that relates to taxation? And I want you to 
recognize that, name it in your head, and kind of challenge that with ancient taxation and what that was. So ancient taxation wasn't like this necessarily. It was like this in that it was centralized. And it's not voluntary. <laughs> you have to do this so you go to prison. But ancient taxation during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah was, was a lot more different. Um, and so here are some pictures, the very left. Uh, so taxation happened in different ways. There was in-kind taxation. So you would take some of your produce, some of your livestock, some of your supplies, uh, grain from your silo, and uh, wine, olive oil, and you would send that in to the government. And so there's actually, if you follow ceramics, and if you follow the store ceramics at the time of the Persian period, you see distribution to certain centralized places, which tells you there was a system of collection, and they're sealed, um, and the seal said Judah, actually. And these are all over Israel in excavation. Um, they find these every year. And uh, they're written also, uh, these vessels are also uniform, saying you're not just making your own. These are sponsored national vessels that are used to fill up with in-kind goods and send to the government. And this happens throughout human history, where if you're a farmer somewhere, your burdens to the government before even feeding your own children, because you had to, you had no choice. It was coercive. The middle picture is a picture of two uh, coins from Judah from the fourth century. And so coins begin to appear. Uh, the first discovered coin, you can date these. The problem with coins is they are so small that they don't fall under stratigraphy. And these are the first things looted. And so during the period of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they, there are very few coins found. During the Roman period, you get to like tons of coins found, which says something about the economy and the shift in that. You just have a few, uh, a few different types, and this is one of them. So when the Egyptians gained independence from the Persians, that's when coinage began to appear. And one of the early theses about why they did is a ways to pay off um, soldiers, garrisons. And so in the beginning, it was what's called fiat money. And so a shekel of silver was roughly about a month's wages of a, of a laborer, a shekel being somewhere between 7.8 to 9.4 grams of silver. Uh, from the very invention of coinage, you have the invention of forgery. And so um, a lot of the coinage actually have uh, silver plated, but something different, like copper in the inside. And so for, for this one, uh, you can't read it here, but it actually says Judah on the left coin. And it's with an Athenian owl. So you have this mix of different motifs. So it's actually really under debate whether was this really to pay for um, soldiers or was it a way for Judeans to establish their own polity in the wake of Persian uh, weakness? Or was it a way for the Persians to double down on Judah? We're going to control this to prevent the Egypt. You, you don't know that. Um, to the right is Ramat Rahel, which I showed you, which I was part of an excavation um, when I was a grad student. Those stones don't move themselves. So we don't have this type of taxation now, uh, except for maybe jury duty. When you get that letter uh, a month ago, I was speaking at Pepperdine University. And about 10 minutes before speaking there, I got a text from my wife saying, you got a letter from the government. <laughs> and, it's, and so it was jury duty. It was OK. Uh, but that's all that we have. And so we know this from the Bible, like with Solomon. Uh, we know this from ancient Near Eastern texts. You can go to a district, you can go to a, a larger home, and you can require a labor from usually young males from that home to serve. And that labor was used for usually building buildings or sometimes military. And that was a tremendous loss, because if anyone has had any type of experience at a, at a farm, what happens when you lose 20% uh, of your labor force during the harvest um, or during the planting season? How can you? Uh, survive by that? How can you exist? And so labor was one way that you can tax. So taxation today, uh, it's complex, it's a pain. But the very basic tenet is kind of parallel. You have to pay something. And when you do that, it moves the power from you to some centralized location. And it is redistributed in some way. And here, it's the same way. We have taxation in Ezra Nehemiah. It's redistributed to the Persian, it's, it's given to the Persians and redistributed in some way. And what's important to recognize, it's collected probably by some sort of Judean. 
And so when you have such a vast empire, you need to find native leadership to help you administer this taxation system. So you have uh, some sort of, the collection centers were in Jerusalem, Ramat Rahel, different places in Judah. And when doing so, you have to have grafting. You, ha you have to pay people that are collecting, the officials. So you're creating the stratification through this taxation as well. And what are you doing with this? You are feeding the army. You are helping to feed the soldiers that are creating walls, that are doing store centers, that are making this pottery. And you're trying to also do emblems. What else happens when during an empire? You have political usurpation, right? You have political legitimacy. So one way that you fight that is through emblems of authority. So there's a reason that you import elephants. There's a reason that you have great paintings, uh, even ivory. You know, in, in Amos, when it mentions beds of ivory, and you know that ivory is an indigenous to Israel, um, you bring that in so people can say, whoa, wow, this must be a legitimate type. Of so this is all done from taxation. And it's a way that power is displayed in Ezra Nehemiah. But how is it displayed? That says a lot about the theology. So taxation in Ezra Nehemiah is very, very much shown and portrayed as being generous. So look at Ezra 1.4. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. So remember the, the Persian official behind my back as I'm writing this? You want to talk positively about this person wants taxation to happen, and they want to do it by ideology. And they're doing it because whatever you give, whatever you're required to give, is going to go back to the temple. And that is what's being said in Ezra Nehemiah. So the interesting thing is for by the time of Ezra Nehemiah, for 2,000 years, temples were storehouses and foundries of precious metals. It acted almost like a bank in certain ways. They collected and they distributed. They used it to feed and uh, to provide for the, the priestly leaders of these temples. And so this actually makes perfect sense. And there is a theory that even the temple during the time of Ezra Nehemiah that was built served as some sort of silver foundry, a collection place. And so you get this idea explicitly of taxation as being um, something of generosity, that we take it, but we're going to give it all back to you for your walls and for your temples. Taxation as triangulation is another aspect of the power. So you remember when the enemies and the adversaries are feeling that uh, we don't want the Judeans to build this temple, we don't want them to build this wall, what do they tell the Persians? They, they go to the Judeans to help, and then they are rejected, and then they go to the Persians, and what do they tell the Persians? If you let them build this wall, build this temple, they will stop paying taxes. That's their argument, because it has efficacy because that leads the Persians to stop and halt the building. And in fact, um, here is, is the, the prime argument. If this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be reduced. So it's a very strategic argument. Do you think the adversaries care about the royal revenue? They don't care at all, but they know how to get attention from those in authority. And they're using taxation to go against the Judeans, say they, they were rebel. So not paying taxes is tantamount to a military rebellion. There's some legitimacy in that, because if you're not paying, then that means you might be stocking for yourself to um, break free from independence. But realistically, Judah's tiny. They wouldn't do that. That would be a foolish maneuver. So taxation is portrayed generously. It's portrayed as triangulation but it's also portrayed as oppressive. So you read a text, you also want to read the subtext. And I see a question, please. Ah, these are um, the adversaries are actually writing a letter to the Persians saying, you got to stop this. They're going to rebel against you. So this is from the adversaries. Yeah. Thank you. Taxation is oppressive. And so you can outright say, if you have someone behind your shoulder, taxation is bad. 
but you can kind of hint at that in Nehemiah 1 through 13, where it says, we are, bar we are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. And so what happens here is it's very subversive. They never complain about the king's tax directly. They never complain about the Persians directly in Nehemiah 5. But they do say that we're losing our land and we're losing our children to slavery, to debt slavery. And think about how subversive that is. Because if you know Torah, if you know the Pentateuch, the land is a gift from God. If you know the Pentateuch, you know that you're supposed to release people from debt obligations and from slavery every sabbatical year. And so it's as if you're doing code that this is a terrible thing, but riding under the watchful eye of the Persians in authority, and it ends up being very subversive that this taxation is oppressive. Because what we're doing is resulting in giving up and violating our own norms of Torah. We're losing our gift of land that God has given to us. And so taxation, uh, really, if you think about economy, and this is a really hard thing uh, when you're thinking about economics in the Bible, economic thought is so intrinsic to our nature. We don't think about it consciously, but yet in the ancient world, especially the Old Testament world, they ran under a totally different economy. So just, for example, imagine a world without money. There's no, money didn't exist during this time. Even though there was coinage, coinage was symbolic. It was not money. It was basically given uh, to very few elites. Most people didn't have access. Ideas like a real estate agent, uh, choosing a job, choosing who to marry, these are not questions that you had in antiquity. Uh, these were all economic transactions that were done for you. And so when you talk about economy, economy is basic allocation of goods. We do it through a market exchange. Well, there's no markets. And then when you see the word market in the Old Testament, it, it really means a place of exchange. And a place of exchange isn't done by price so much, but done by duties, values, relationships. There's a great economic anthropological story that was a horrible qualifier. There's a great story, I should say. Uh, and so there's um, anthropologists in the early 20th century were in South America. And they were traveling to study. And um, they went, and they were hungry. And they saw a person with his brother going to the market to sell potatoes. And so the two American anthropologists said, hey, we want to buy your potatoes. Um, and the people said, oh, we, we can't sell it to you. But they, and they offer all this money. And uh, the South Americans said, we're not going to sell it to you. And the anthropologist left, thinking, wow, those people are so uneducated. They're not going to take double the money. And yet they're going to the market to sell these potatoes. They're, they're so uneducated. Meanwhile, the farmers go to the market and say, hey, we just met some Americans. They want to buy these potatoes. They're so stupid. Ha, ha, ha. And the point was, it wasn't their potatoes to sell. They had to sell it to a cousin who had to have the right of refusal. So it's, the, the analogy is, what if you tried to sell the apartment that you're renting? You're just not allowed to do that. And there are certain duties and values and relationships and reciprocal agreements within kin that you are bound to in the same way that we today are bound to prices. You, know, you can't go to Nordstrom and pay less for something like that. We are bound to a price. Other communities, most of human economic history is not run by markets. You know, in fact, a lot of economic historians don't believe markets truly existed in the pure form in terms of Western capitalism until the Industrial Revolution. That transactions were done by duties, obligations, and kinship relationships. Uh, so like going to a wedding, you know, you go to a wedding, you see something, you eat nice, go dancing, hear some music, and in exchange you give them a blender or something like that. That's kind of a weird economic <laughs> transaction, but it's done by relationship, right? You do it because you want this new couple to have a fantastic blender. So taxation is different. Okay. Uh, another way that powers manifest besides taxation is textuality and literacy and reading. And so you think about reading and literacy. This is another paradigm shift from your consciousness. Literacy during the time of Ezra Nehemiah, I read anywhere between 1% to 7% were literate. Uh, what would me that mean for you? as a leader of a community of faith that not only has no access to a Bible, but it is not literate if they did have access. And so writing systems, uh, what they can do, they are very powerful, 
because it could take ideology and kind of weaponize that ideology, right? And freeze it in time through writing. And so you think about Ezra Nehemiah, I'm amazed at how Ezra Nehemiah, they're kind of obsessed with writing, right? They're obsessed with it in certain ways. So writing is powerful. It emerges from power and control. Writing was invented in two different places in kind of the same way. So before writing, uh, if you look at Wikipedia, you would think writing was invented January 1st, 1201 AM and 3200 BC exactly. Well, all inventions have a narrative. And so even over a thousand years before writing, they had what we call pre-writing in Mesopotamia. And so writing emerged as a form of economic control. And so what you see is an, act, an example from uh, 4000 BC of basic um, kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it? These trinkets that are used to count, counting devices. And so what you do, you would get clay. And if you work with pottery, when clay gets to a, a leathery feel, you can mold it together. And you would count how many units of grain or wine you would have. You'd put the counter inside the clay, then you would seal it. That way you know if you didn't have enough wine and you opened the seal and you could count the counters, you can see if the inventory was what you thought it was. It's really pretty genius in how to keep inventory without systems of writing. You had this for religious reasons as well. You had pre-writing in like geometric patterns to have some sort of a numinous effect. And writing emerged in a way that you would kind of think. It emerged with little signs. And so you're at some point counting livestock or wine. And so you would draw that on clay with a stylus. And eventually those signs would simplify. And you have here an example of Sumerian, the first writing system which is barred by Akkadian, there are actually um, a couple of Sumerian loan words in biblical Hebrew. It made its way that way. And uh, eventually these signs, so that one that you see pointed is a sign for sun, which kind of makes sense. And that it simplifies to a cuneiform sign. It also is a sign for God. And so how hard is it to learn this language? Well, in the very basic form of cuneiform Akkadian, there are 600 signs, like basic signs, and they're all multivalent, which means signs can mean three different things. They can be a pictogram, they could be a sound, and they could be a marker. And so you have a marker for like a wood instrument, something for like a, something that floats, like a boat, uh, something for a deity. And all these signs actually have multiple meanings in terms of their sound. It could have many different sounds. And so if you were a scribe, you were very elite, and you did this for decades. And we know this because what's left is a lot of scribal school materials. You can see a beginning scribe to an ending scribe. And who can pay for all this? If you're a scribe, you're a subject of the king. And the king is doing this for bureaucracy, and this moves to ideologies of how you became king. It moves to priestly magical rituals that you had. So literacy was elite. It was reduced to those that had the power to use literacy to weaponize their own ideologies. And when literacy is elite, it takes on different properties. And here are two examples. Uh, until about 2005, there was one example of 10th century um, kind of early Hebrew in the land of Israel. And since then, there are now two more that have been found. And so the one on the left was found in the early 20th century. This is called the Gezer calendar. So if you know about rocks, this is written on limestone. And this is called palimpsest. And so you can see there's writing. Then they scratch it off, and they have new writing. And so it's using the same kind of tablet, this case limestone, and writing over and over again. And this is some sort of agricultural calendar. So it talks about uh, 12 months and different types of harvest, different types of products. And one of the interpretations for what exactly this is, found in the city of Gezer, is a magical text in which, you know, think about harvest. And think about harvest when you depend on things outside your control, like rain and uh, blight. So the idea of this is this might be a magical text where before you plant, you take this limestone, you scratch off the words onto the ground to create some sort of magical power so the gods will bless your harvest. And one estimate, if you look at agriculture in ancient Israel, is that you would have as many as three zero harvests every 10 years. 
So even without the work, if something happens with blight or with drought, you lose everything. And that's why you need silos. That's why you need livestock to protect yourself from zero harvest. So there's a very magical power when riding is limited. And this other one to the right was found um, in 2005, pretty close to Jerusalem. And this is about um, 30 pounds. So if you see excavation, it's very non-glamorous work. You're basically moving and digging. The last day, you're cleaning everything up for the pictures. So basically, you take all the volunteers, give them a brush, and say, clean everything up. And so a college kid was cleaning up a rock, sounds some writing, and said, oh, uh, this looks like something besides just scratch. It turns out this is what he found. And it has on there a few different inscriptions. One of them says, to Baal. So this is, might be some sort of altar at some point. And one of them is an alphabet, but the alphabet isn't in the order that we know. It actually reverses lettering. So it's called an ABCDerary. It reverses the letter. And another idea is by reversing the letter, it has some sort of magic connotation. So when you look at the Bible and you know that David takes the census and is punished by the census, it doesn't actually tell you what was bad about doing the census. And a lot of the interpretation is not trusting God, but that's now in question. Maybe. One interpretation is by taking the census, it's a writing activity, is David engaging in some sort of magical Canaanite activity rather than something that's pure Yahweh worship. That, that's one possible interpretation we, we don't really know. Writing is used for magic because it's so rare. It's used also to promote kings. And so this is a really well-known inscription from the 1990s. Um, if you look at that note and think about your good Paleo-Hebrew that says House of David. So this is the only mention of King David that we have, and it was found in secondary construction. And so this is an Aramaic stella, and if you see, this is written in basalt. And if you can see, it's actually kind of possibly a torso of a body with a head. And this talks about this king who defeated the House of David. And so writing, okay, so basalt is really hard to write on, and the letters are really beautiful. You're not going to do this unless you're a professional scribe with lots of funding. And we have all sorts of this genre during the time of ancient Israel. Uh, the very left is something called a Moabite stone, written about, uh, basically it begins, I am the great king Mesha of Moab. It talks later about defeating the kings of Omri who punished me, but then later I defeated. The middle is um, a type of text that is found in the British Museum. This talks specifically about uh, invading Hezekiah's Jerusalem, but it's perspective of uh, the Assyrians, which is incredible. And even writing, remember, people aren't literate, so why are you doing this? Why are you spending all this money to write these? Well, just seeing that brings authority, and so this is an inscription found that you can't even read from the ground level. The writing is too small, so just having this presence, having this great uh, carving, it says something about authority, Writing has that sort of effect. You look to the biblical world, and you think about on the left, you have a text from the Dead Sea Scroll community. Uh, the writing, they were working to preserve religious texts. To the right, you have found in the late 1970s, um, this was actually, I heard this from the actual excavator of this site, Gabby Barkai. Uh, he said that a junior high kid found this. Because if you're in Israel, um, you, you get to go on all these super cool field trips that are just down the street. And so he was excavating, and he was annoyed that he had to host these kids to visit the Ketef Hinnom um, site, which is a burial site in the Hinnom Valley in Jerusalem. And he said, and this is an apocryphal story, but I heard it directly from him as he was presenting that there was this boy that was just super um, troublesome and not listening. So you guard this tomb. It's really important that you guard this tomb. And later he said, well, I found this tiny silver amulet. And what this is, is literally the oldest extant biblical text that we have from the 6th century BC. And what would you guess this was? Uh, I remember the description. He said this publicly so I could say this. I wanted to kill that kid. When he, <laughs> which was ironic because it was a tomb where he found that. Uh, so this is, remember, 7 to 9 grams of silver is equivalent to one month of labor. This is written on silver. It's found in a tomb, and it is the priestly blessing from Numbers, the Lord bless you and keep you, the, the oldest biblical extant text. So think about the context by which we find this. 
This is not some Gideon Bible. It's, this is written on silver and beautiful writing in a tomb, which means that somehow they wanted this to wear this during, like you could use this and actually buy a lot of stuff, but you wanted this in the afterlife and you want to inscribe writing of the priestly blessing, which says a little bit about the text. You go to Ezra Nehemiah and it kind of adopts this idea of literacy and textuality and writing as powerful. It's obsessed with writing. So it begins with census. There's so many lists in Ezra Nehemiah. And so when I asked working preacher this last round, give me something in Ezra Nehemiah, how many in the lectionary from Ezra? One passage. There's one passage. And so I had to write on Daniel 12. I have no idea about Daniel 12. I'm sure I'll do it. Then I read Daniel 12, like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. How am I going to write on this? How am I going to preach on this? I don't know. Um, they have all these lists. You know how power is negotiated? It's actually through letters. They write these letters to the Persian Empire and they get letters back. And how is decision made? They go to archives to make these decisions, right? The other thing about the letters, they're written in Aramaic. And so um, I actually think in Ezra Nehemiah, the use of language is really important. Because you know in Nehemiah 13, they're freaking out because you know, half the kids are speaking Ashdodite and half of them are speaking Judean. And so if you are of the second generation or if you're trying to make your kids some sort of bilingual, it is a real struggle, right? And so uh, both my kids were born in LA and my, my wife and I were, we really wanted them to learn Korean. So uh, our older son went to daycare um, through age five in Koreatown where they did everything in Korean. So he actually didn't speak English until he was four. And that's actually not too weird if you raise your kid in Koreatown. It's, it's, it's not weird. We had, um, I remember graduation there, she, he had a friend and she was Mexican. And uh, she gave the speech in Korean as a five-year-old. I couldn't speak to her mom because her mom couldn't speak English. She spoke Spanish. So here's this five-year-old kid speaking Spanish at home, Korean at daycare, and her English was phenomenal as well from neighborhood kids. And so language is so hard, and they're freaking out because half the kids speak Ashadite, which is probably code for Aramean. Um, uh, Aramaic, I should say. They couldn't say Aramaic because remember, the Persians are right there, so they had to say Ashdodite. So they're using Aramaic in Ezra Nehemiah, and they're using it to get what they want, to get support for the Persians. Compare that from 2 Kings, where they say, to remind you, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrians. The Assyrian leaders are speaking in Hebrew, saying all these terrible things that they're going to do once they invade the city. And the people at the wall, the Judeans at the wall say, uh, don't speak to us in Hebrew, but the Arameans say, do you remember what they say? You will eat your own dung and drink your own urine. You know? And so it was the bilingualism of the, Ar the Assyrians that gave power. And here you have the reverse. The bilingualism of the Judeans gives them power through these written texts. The power of textuality comes to a forefront, I think, in Nehemiah 8. So if you go to Nehemiah 8, once you get to Nehemiah 8, verse 1, you should be so surprised. In fact, uh, Nehemiah 7 should be where the text ends, right? Because Ezra 2 is the census list. Ezra 1, they come back. Ezra 2, they list the census of those that returned. And they build the temple. They build the wall. And then they have Nehemiah 8, 7, which lists the same census. It's almost verbatim. And so you close the census, book done. But no, it goes on to Nehemiah 8. Uh, there's more. And here you have all these interesting things happen that talk about the power of textuality. And all the people gathered as one man, one person, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. This is really surprising because this is translating the Torah of Moses. But it's saying it's explicitly a scroll or a book. So Torah means teaching. It means law. It sometimes means to shoot. Very rarely in the Bible does it refer to an actual text. And this is one of those places. It's not the law of Moses or the teaching of Moses. It is actually the physical book, the scroll of the law of Moses. And again, it talks about the ears of the people attentive to the book of the law. 
And so now, whatever this spoken oral word is has become textualized and written down. It's been preserved. And that's a really significant innovation here. Another part is, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard. So you know from uh, your Hebrew that when there are uh, 50 women and one male, you use the Hebrew plural form for male, right? And so by saying both men and it's actually being redundant. And I think it's doing that for emphasis in this text. It's saying everybody has inclusion, not just men, but women, but those who can understand what they heard, which means children. Children can have access to this written text as well if they hear that. And it was read throughout the day. You know there's no word in Hebrew really to read. Uh, kara means to read aloud. And it makes sense in a, in a community that where there's no literacy and no text. When you read, you're supposed to read aloud. Imagine in your communities of faith, if there was no access to a Bible, but you had to read to them the Bible, what kind of different dynamic that would bring to you and to your meetings and gatherings? And they read from early morning to midday. I want you to ask yourself right now, what was the longest sermon you've ever given? What was the longest one? And did you realize, it, and what was your sense of the congregation, the community, as they were listening? We've all been there. You're speaking, you're on page two, and you're losing them right there. You're losing them right now. I teach undergrads. I know the feeling. I have it. Uh, six hours that they're reading from this for six hours. Can you imagine, hey, we want you to come preach. You need to fill from 9 to 3 p.m. That's your time slot. Like, uh, so I think it's being expressive to see the power of the book, the power of textuality. And towards the end, they read from the book. Yes, please. Quick question. Yeah. So, was, so was that sermon being read in the Oh, right here. There you go. That's a great question. Uh, they read from the book of the law uh, in Hebrew. But remember, half the, the children speak Ashdodite. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You often feel that it was explained, but the more common understanding, it was translated into Aramaic so people could understand. And so this actually has a little bit of a hermeneutical nod for those of you that are in communities with, with different languages as native languages. To, not to necessarily model it, but to think about how important it is for those to understand. And the language will represent the culture to, to preach in a way that is culturally responsible to the communities that are there and the communities that you aspire to, to minister to the group. Yes, please. Yes. A lot of this, I could only speculate, but a lot of this I know because what I want to show you in Nehemiah 8, and this is not my idea, this is Liz Freed, that other commentary on Ezra, she has an article on this. She argues that the scroll is replacing God, and that's very deliberate. And so the people rise, the people respond, the people say amen, all, everyone's participating. And this is a brilliant theological innovation on power where you're controlled by the Persians, but the true power comes from Torah, from the written document. The true power in Nehemiah 5 subverted the taxation so they can keep the people, the children from being sold into slavery. That this is, so, what I imagine, you have a group of people, you have Ezra, and Ezra is kind of a big deal. And this is the appearance of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, which is rare. And you have this reading, this celebration, this kind of weeping, and this efficacy. So whatever happens on this day of the reading of the Torah from the scroll, it happens, it results in some actions and a resolve to the Lord and a confession in Nehemiah 9. So something amazing has happened. It's a worship experience. But what's being worshiped is not God. Because remember, God's kind of distant. But now we have a written document that talks about the laws of God, the teachings of God. And that is what's being celebrated here in this time. I mean, they say amen. They go prostrate. They're, they're acting as if the actual words of God are. And when I see um, interpretation, 
I see that there's given access, that you hear something in a different language, and you know, some people are responding. And so when I was a kid, I remember my mom and dad speaking in Korean, and I just didn't understand. It was so frustrating. And a lot of second generation kids, my generation, have that frustration. So there's anticipation for you that are hearing, but don't understand later. But then it's translated into Aramaic, like, OK, I understand now. I understand. Uh, a really phenomenal, unique event. And what I believe to be a tremendous theological innovation on power in Ezra Nehemiah. And so written Torah is the true locus of power. It is not authoritative, but it was powerful in Ezra Nehemiah. You read from early morning to midday. When Ezra opened the book, the people stood up. People answered amen, lifted their hands, and bowed down. There was explanation of the word translation into a language that was comprehensible so everybody could understand. There was interpretation of the word, and the people wept. The people wept for the first time. And so you get this hints of this other times. I, I love it when the Bible is thinking about its own textuality. So Josiah is the other example I could think of, something very powerful in a written document. But this is really ensconced within a worship service in which the written Torah, I think it's a really great observation by Liz Freed, that the written text is almost replacing God in this work. So they, they come back to the land, they build the temple, they build the walls, they bring back Ezra, and they're almost worshiping the written Torah of God. That is a really tremendous thing. In the power of Ezra Nehemiah, it's so wonderfully subversive. It's God who fills Cyrus with the Spirit, and it's God who also provides this Torah lasting. And with this authority and written document in Torah, you could see how early Judaism and early Christianity really build on some of the themes of Ezra Nehemiah in different ways. So who is the God of Ezra Nehemiah, a God that holds more power than the empire? Remember that really big picture of the Persian Empire? Well, yeah, that's all true. We could acknowledge that. Guys right here, watching me right. But God indeed holds more power than the empire 